Hi, I'm Elliot Mizrahi, Vice President for Communications and Thought Leadership with PAGE, and welcome to this episode of the new CCO podcast, where we explore what it takes to be a next-gen CCO. When I started getting into blockchain, I heard that they were going to reduce legal spend, and I got scared. But what I found was there are myriad opportunities for me, in which the law interacts. And I think for you guys, to the extent that there may be any fear around blockchain and what it may mean for you, I think in a lot of ways, it'll pose a lot of exciting new puzzles that you'll be able to help figure out. Today, we're bringing you the second half of a panel discussion about blockchain from the 2018 Page Society Spring Seminar. If you haven't listened to the first half yet, I suggest you check that out first. We'll be rejoining moderator Tamika Tilleman of the Global Blockchain Business Council, who spoke with Sandra Rowe of UWIN Corp, and Joshua Ashley Clayman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance Legal Working Group. Cryptographers and, and the other brilliant coders who have been responsible for a lot of the evolution that's occurred to date have done extraordinary things at a technical level. You know, I, I think uh, when yep. it comes to uh, the, the accomplishments that we've seen in the last few years, uh, in, a, in a raw technical sense, they are giants. Uh, but as, as communicators, I think it's fair to say many of them are pygmies. Uh, and so how do we reconcile this fact and, and come to uh, a better understanding of the language that needs to be used to tell the story of how these technologies uh, will solve problems? I'll start. Uh, we need help, like, now. <laughs> the first step is admitting you like, have a problem. badly. Uh, you're absolutely right. And the community itself has accepted the fact that they've really messed it up from a communication standpoint because they weren't thinking about it. And so now, all of a sudden, you see things splashed across the screens and on Twitter and whatnot, and it's just a jumbled mess. There's small groups trying to find common taxonomy. And part of it also, you know, I don't cast all the blame on the community. It's not like we were, um, we're all bad at this. It's just things are developing so quickly that terminology is also evolving very quickly, which is just natural course of the way things happen. Um, I think we will get to a place where we will have some common taxonomy, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, some people use blockchain as an umbrella term for anything related to a distributed database. Um, other people you know, cringe at that and freak out whenever you say anything like that. So we still have a lot to do, but I think what would be really helpful is if we had communications experts and leaders stepping into this space and actually providing some leadership in that way. Uh, you would not believe how many companies I get approached all the time saying, do you know anyone who's really good at communications? Do you know anyone who actually we could hire? There is a lot of opportunity right now. I think there's opportunity for firms to be created to step into this space to help out all of the startups that just have no clue uh, with respect to proper communication and storytelling. The storytelling element is what we're really missing. And um, I'm not talking about the stories about, you know, Bitcoin, bro culture, and whatever. I'm talking about storytelling in a way that the average person will begin to understand why this will have benefits to um, you know, their lives. And there's going to be many areas. So for me, this is an opportunity. Uh, I implore all of you to try to help us um, in, in your own space, whatever it is. And um, you know, it's a major deficit for the community. Right now. Josh, I think the, the other piece of this is, uh, just as there are significant deficits and gaps uh, that exist around the communications side of the story, 
uh, on, on blockchain technology. There are also big gaps that exist on the regulatory side uh, of the house. Uh, and eventually those gaps become the problems of communicators uh, who are responsible for explaining those challenges uh, when companies and other organizations encounter them. Uh, we're in a space right now where many of the regulators don't know what to make of this yet. Uh, they, they don't know how to apply these entirely new tools and frameworks uh, to existing bodies of law and uh, rulemaking. Tell us a little bit about what communicators should be thinking about as they try to help their companies get ahead of this. I mean, one example that I was thinking about this morning uh, is that you know, as a group, communicators have a pretty established set of tools that they use when people make mistakes and when they need to explain those mistakes uh, to the stakeholders within their organization. We don't really yet have an established set of tools for when autonomous, distributed autonomous contracts or entities make mistakes. And those mistakes are gonna come, and we're gonna have to develop a new toolbox to help explore and explain what should happen uh, when that transpires. Any thoughts on that front? So I have a number of thoughts, but if I could chunk them into a few different categories. So what you're, you're mentioning first about regulators I mean, there are so many crisscrossing regulations because some believe that this is, you know, the idea of, say, a digital token and the way that it's being used potentially is a creation of a new kind of asset. You know, there are different views about what exactly uh, the token is. Um, certainly, the SEC has spoken out a lot saying that, you know, many, many of these our securities in the US. But the thing I think to remember is it's not just the US. So not only do we have these crisscrossing and sometimes overlapping, not just gaps, but actually overlapping regulations. But by and large, I mean, the token sales that you may have heard of, also called ICOs, you know, they're happening globally. So we have other jurisdictions with, again, sometimes overlapping, sometimes gaps in terms of regulation. And there isn't always, to Sandra's point, a common language, even, you know, across, you know, whether something is likely to be, say, a security in one country versus in another, or even and, whether and just security to, is to the same to unpack thing. this for a moment for this audience, traditionally, if a company wants to raise money, they do an initial public offering. And you know, presumably, most of us know what that looks like, and that's a very well-regulated process. For an initial coin offering or an initial token offering, depending Again, terrible terminology. Terrible terminology. Yes, terrible um, <laughs> There, there really isn't any body of information, and can you tell us what, what this is in a, in a nutshell? What, uh, what does this process entail? Um, sure, and I will say there are, I should say this even though not legal advice, but I feel responsible to say it, there definitely are laws that do apply, and there are laws that need to be followed. So it's not that there was this creation of something entirely new and nothing applies, which sometimes I think has been a confusing message that has been communicated, right? This isn't the Wild West, it never was. There are rules everywhere, you can't help but trip over them. Um, so many people decided to sell digital tokens broadly, okay? They don't always sell them to unaccredited retail, like mom and pop investors. Sometimes they only sell them to particular types of sophisticated accredited investors. But there are different reasons for which they were doing that. In some cases, it was purely to raise money, right? Purely a play for, for raising money. In other cases, 
to a greater or lesser extent, they may have been trying to build a network somehow um, and take advantage of a network effect by having broadly distributed tokens that then could be exchanged. Right? So this is a very generic, uh, generic description. Um, so maybe not as, as helpful, but perhaps helpful as a starting point. Um, there have been many, many stumbles thus far. Um, and a few places that I can think of just off the top of my head where communicators are needed. Okay, if you have companies that are contemplating doing a token sale, they need to have disclosure documents. Whether they're a white paper, whether they're white papers, which are, um, there's no one form, right, which is in and of itself a challenge, or whether they actually have prospectuses and things like that, depending on how they're done. But you need to be able to know, and this was said by a colleague of mine once, whether the person writing this is a genius or a fool. Like, it has to be clear. You have to know that the regulators are people too, and they have to be able to understand it, and people need to be able to understand it. And beyond just the written messaging, you also have people who sit on panels and talk about things. And they may be communicating, they may not be used to be communicating about things that are likely to be sales of securities in many cases. They may just be founders who are excited about what they think is a software that they're selling or something like that. Um, and so it's really critical because certain things that they may say may have a material impact on whether they have run afoul of a law um, even, if you're, even if you're not thinking about any of the regulations that exist, whether you know, securities or otherwise, fraud, you can't do it, right? And so- It's a good rule. <laughs> yeah, so statements about this wonderful technology, and of course we do need, I think one of the slides talked about compelling narratives or something like that in a decentralized space, right? Yes, we need them, but we can't, have overstatements, and we can't have people making claims that then others are, are making investments based on. So those are a couple of things. If I may just say one more thing and I'll, I'll pass the mic, so to speak. Back to smart contracts for a minute. One of the critical things, I think, is that talk for a minute about the natural language versus the code. So how do you know the two match? And that's something we struggle with as lawyers, certainly, because you, know, you go to law school, or for all the communicators, the professionals here, you, know, you go to school or you somehow train to be sure that you're using the right term, that you're using a term of art. Now, how do you make sure that that makes its way into a smart contract? And part of the, part of the solution may be that you keep the smart contracts very simple just very basic and you still keep your natural language contract for your indemnities and all sorts of other things. But I think that's a key, a key element. And for people who may be able to span both worlds, meaning they are communications professionals and they happen to be able to code, that is, that is important. I think that will be more and more important as we go forward. 
So we're going to pivot to the audience's questions in just a moment, so start thinking of those questions now. But before we do that, I wanted to talk through a couple of specific use cases. You mentioned, both of you mentioned, a number of companies or strategies that are evolving uh, to harness these technologies to solve problems. And we're seeing some intriguing early efforts to address challenges facing communicators or the media, uh, and wanted to spend just a moment on those. Uh, the first is a, a new startup called Civil that I think some of us have uh, dealt with. They're building a blockchain-based newsroom that will allow any organization, uh, and in most instances, these are media organizations or organizations that generate content, to create a, a news platform where they'll be able to sell their content directly to consumers uh, and do so in a way that really isn't possible today. If you think about the subscription model for media, the reason that media organizations exist the way they do right now is because transaction fees are so high that it's impossible for them to sell, in most instances, a single story profitably. There's no way for me to go to a newspaper website and pay 10 cents to read a story uh, in, a, in a way that is financially viable for the organization on the other side of that transaction. With blockchain technology, your transaction costs should come down precipitously, and you will be able to enable micropayments that will allow individuals to consume news on an entirely new basis. We'll be able to pay 10 cents or 5 cents or 1 cent for a story, and if you do that at scale, everyone is, it's a pretty good deal for all parties involved. So we're seeing uh, with Civil the first real attempt at this, and they're collaborating with a number of different organizations uh, to establish blockchain-based newsrooms. We're also seeing some fascinating efforts to validate information. Uh, and here there's another New York-based organization called uh, VoxGov, which is creating initially a registry of government information. So they figured out how to map all of the networks of uh, government organizations. 80% of that information is not available through uh, an internet search. And they take all of that information, scrape it from the sites, and then log it and register it uh, in a way that is very secure uh, and can't be altered down the road. Uh, we see every four years or eight years when a new administration comes into power in the United States, there is this vast, bizarre Orwellian process that occurs uh, where information that is not of the liking of the current administration is expunged from the public record uh, and it's not available to be searched. Once you have information in a secure uh, blockchain-based system, it's going to be there, and you can use it for data visualization and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, the last intriguing thing that I'll mention is uh, we're seeing new efforts to validate information that's put out into the public space. One example on this, we do uh, some work with an organization that's one of the largest election monitors in the world. And when they release a report on the validity of election results, it's really important. That information is going to determine whether there are riots in the streets or it's going to determine whether or not people accept the results of a democratic process. They have already experienced in a number of countries that the information they put out, the press releases that they issue, will be taken and altered 
and altered in ways that suit the political ends of different actors on the ground, uh, but totally distort the information that they are releasing into the system. And so they're now working to notarize this information via blockchain in order to ensure its accuracy uh, and, and to ensure that there is a reliable record of information that was released into the public sphere. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on So I just have cases? one comment to make about what you've just said, which I think is really important. In a network in the blockchain world, you assume, there's game theory in this, you assume there are bad actors. You cannot prevent the bad actors from doing what they want to do because they're gonna be bad actors. What you can do, however, is you can have transparency that finds out who is a bad actor very quickly, and then the network can deal with what to do with that bad actor. In today's world, we have bad actors doing different things, but it's not well organized enough in some cases for us to get the bad actors out or to have them have accountability fast enough. Um, before they do lots of damage. So that's one concept that I think if anyone asks you why is blockchain even a topic, um, it's actually to reduce a lot of fraud and to raise the transparency of, of things. And, and voting is one of them, press releases that get manipulated in the voting process, that's another, you know, that's another application. It's pretty important in certain cases, right? Here I have to do a 30 second commercial. Last week we announced a new partnership uh, to uh, do blockchain-based voting in the state of West Virginia uh, for overseas military voters. So we're seeing some of these solutions already come into place. All right, I'm being told that it is question time. Uh, so what I would ask is we will take three questions all together uh, and then give folks an opportunity to respond, please. Uh, Al Como from Elevate Credit, thanks for coming today. Um, I'm more scared now than I was before. Oh no! <laughs> I have an observation. Twice I've been this scared in my life. When I was in high school, I was told that if I didn't understand computer science, uh, I wouldn't be able to make a living pretty soon. And I had to, um, you know, I had to take this computer science class, and it was coding. Um, but somebody showed me a Mac uh, five years later, and suddenly it all was easy. They had figured out how to dumb it down for someone like me. Ten years later, they were showing me HTTP, colon, slash, slash, blah, 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 and you had to type in all this stuff. And then, then somebody showed me, and I said, this could never work, but then somebody showed me Yahoo. And it all made sense. This is before Google. It all made sense now. I could figure out how to do things. It was all organized for me, etc. So my observation is I have to believe somebody will come along with something that makes it possible for this to be, uh, for the average person to to understand. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that and what's going on in that space. Wonderful question. All right, let's take two more, please. Uh, over here. Hi, uh, Arthur Hodges from CoBank in Denver. This is a great presentation, thanks. Um, I'm curious, since the trust element that blockchain provides is typically now provided by mostly governments, right? That's what money systems are run by governments because they, you need the government to provide that trust. What is, the, what is the risk or the potential that governments will be threatened enough by the emergence of blockchain that they'll actually sort of as stakeholders try to shut it down or stop it, if, if that makes sense? Thank you. 
Great question. And right here. I am Jim Finn. Um, two observations first. One, interesting, you didn't at all mention Bitcoin, which is this is the underlying technology for. I think we mentioned it twice, but okay. quickly. But, um, but a lot of people get to it from there. And uh, secondly, um, Charlie Perkins, another member here, and I had a, a startup uh, client last year, and they said, uh, one of them said, oh, I don't want to talk to any journalists that you have to explain this to. I said, well, you won't be talking to any then. <laughs> as, as we all see, this is not a 30-second elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Two questions. On the, on the uh, technology front, is there a danger of the technology forking like open source when you have groups like Hyperledger that has IBM and SAP and Ethereum that has Microsoft? And secondly, how long will the regulatory process happen around this? Because it seems like it's very early days with everybody announcing pilots, but no real uses yet. So let's start and take these in reverse order, and maybe, Josh, you can help us out both with the regulatory discussion, uh, and then if you want to opine on forking as well, that would be uh, welcome, although we can take that one uh, separately. Um, so with respect to regulation, I think there, there's not going to be one point where all regulation magically comes together across the world. I've sat <laughs> in retreats with regulators from around the world, and other colleagues at other firms and entrepreneurs, and we've all tried to put together little tiny pieces, and that's, that's a challenge. But one of the things, if we think not necessarily just about tokens and Bitcoin or you know, digital tokens generally, but if we think about the technology, I think sometimes it's very um, enticing and attractive to think, okay, we're gonna pass enabling legislation for this technology's use, when you might not really have to. So I think rather than just having regulation permitting things, let's hold aside the things prohibiting things, okay? But, but say the technology itself. For example, if every state came out with different laws saying now you can use blockchain for this, now you can use blockchain for that, does that mean you can't use the technology for other things? Like, do we do that for every technology? It would seem to be a little bit weird that we could end up with this patchwork and some uncertainty. Um, so some people have provided some kind of recommendations that, you know what, in terms of enabling legislation, if there's not something that actually makes it either impossible or illegal to use the technology within a jurisdiction or has some ambiguity as to whether you could use it, maybe you don't actually need to have enabling legislation. So I think a lot of thoughts I mean, there's a lot of regulation out there and a lot of different types of laws, so I don't think we can address them all in one way. But I would say, you know, in each case, you kind of have to question whether you actually need new legislation. Um, on the forking point, I think maybe one of you might be better positioned to, to answer that. I think if you meant by forking, meaning they're private ledgers kind of controlled by vendors or big institutions versus open source like or sorry, completely open and public like Bitcoin and Ethereum itself proper. These are public blockchains. Um, my view is it's already happening. There is a plethora of blockchains now being created around the world. And look, each one's gonna have a specific or does have a specific use case. Just because something is private and it's being used within an organization doesn't mean it doesn't have utility value for that organization. It just might mean that like, not everyone's gonna use it. And it's a reason why it's private and it's walled off because they only want a certain group of people to use it, fine. Um, we have intranets and we have got the internet. I mean, 
you know, these things can coexist. But the real issue right now, from an infrastructure standpoint, is now we know we've got so many blockchains, how the heck are they going to talk to each other? Mm -hmm. That interoperability question is where I spend a lot of my time right now, because if they don't talk to each other at a certain level, then what was the point of all of this, yeah. really? Um, so that's where we are from a technology standpoint. There's also issues around scaling. And by the way, the reason why the private blockchains came up to begin with, or the distributed ledgers that they're sometimes called, is because financial information particularly needs to be private. You cannot have everything out there. And frankly, I don't want my stuff out there like that. I want it secured, but doesn't mean that I want all of you all to know, you know the last transaction I did, right? So. Um, there were some real needs that the public blockchains just were not solving for and have not quite solved for yet. But by the way, the public blockchains are all working and developers are working on that. There will be solutions coming down the pipe about confidentiality, privacy, and scalability. Uh, it's just, I'm not surprised that we've got a whole bunch of private ledgers and blockchains now because there are different reasons for why people need these things. And Let's figure out how they talk to each other. That's well, I, I think for me, a very helpful analog is uh, for those of us uh, who can remember the early days of the internet. At that point, what we saw is a lot of different companies and organizations establishing intranets. And those mm -hmm. intranets were designed to facilitate ac activity or exchange or communication within organizations. And then eventually, we reached a point where people recognized, wow, it would be really convenient if we could actually work across organizations as well. And when that occurred, many of those intranets laddered into this new creation called the internet, mm -hmm. and the rest is history. Um, I think this also raises some, some good points uh, around the government question that was asked earlier. What we have found, and, and I do a great deal of work with governments and spent a lot of time working with governments, uh, is that nowhere is the trust crisis more acute than for governments. While we are seeing a global collapse in confidence, nowhere is that problem more excruciating uh, than for government We'll try that, uh, than for government institutions. Uh, and so they are keenly aware of the need in this space. If you look at the US government alone, we had a conversation with the Treasury Department recently. They, last year, issued $144 billion in improper payments. That's billion with a B. They know that the application of blockchain technology would help them dramatically reduce that number. And so while certainly there will be concerns to the extent uh, that this is a, a new alternative to record keeping by institutions, and there will be, I think, a, a moment in which many institutions that are run by individuals who are not doing a good job, job keeping track of information get a little bit nervous about this, on the whole, there are massive gains to be made for government. Uh, the last point that I would make goes back to the first question that was asked, uh, and it is that, you know, again, if you think about the story of the internet, uh, we are, if you put it in that context, in 1993, maybe 1994, when it comes to this technology, and this is one of the great communications opportunities in the history of humankind. Uh, I would argue that in few instances have you had a technology with so much transformational potential 
that is so difficult to explain or has been explained as badly. Uh, hopefully not today. Uh, but I think, again, there is a massive opportunity for people in this room to help shape that process. I just want to add, no one needs to be a computer scientist. No one needs to know about coding. Actually, I would argue there's nothing to fear. If anything, see it as an opportunity. Because here's the thing, blockchain is infrastructure layer technology similar to TCP IP, which run all of our stuff in the background. I don't know how my mobile phone works. I know I punch a bunch of apps, and if it doesn't work, I get mad. But you know, otherwise, I just like expect my apps to run on my mobile phone and, and the internet to work, right? And so I think this sort of obsession about like, I got to know everything about blockchain. I think unless you be, want to become a blockchain professional, like, no, you really don't. There are so many other skill sets we need in this industry because ultimately what this is is another tech industry that's being built. It needs every skill set we can imagine. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the key things of why we want to be at, uh, you know, organizations like yours is to actually say, look, your professionals with very um, with amazing skill sets in, in areas that like the developers need help, business practitioners need help in this. This is a growing um, potentially multi-billion-dollar, multi-trillion-dollar industry that's that's growing over the next decade. And for anyone who thinks it's late, no, 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 we're in the ugly duckling phase of this whole tech. <laughs> very ugly. Well, I think. On that happy note, Josh, unless you can give us a, a five-second summation since we are out of time. I'll just say this. When I started getting into blockchain, I heard about smart contracts. I heard that they were going to reduce legal spend, and I got scared. So I figured out what the heck is going on. But what I found was there are myriad opportunities, you know, new opportunities for me in which the law interacts. And I think for you guys, to the extent that there may be any fear around blockchain and what it may mean for you, I think in a lot of ways, it'll pose a lot of exciting new puzzles that you'll be able to help figure out. A friend of mine told me that we will know we've succeeded when we stop talking about blockchain. And, uh, <laughs> hopefully those of you in this room can help make that happen. Uh, so if we can help you at the Global Blockchain Business Council move that effort forward, we would love to chat. Uh, beyond that, please joining me in thanking Josh and Sandra uh, for today's conversation. Special thanks go to The Home Depot and to our podcast partner, Rivet Smart Audio, for their support in making this season of the new CCO possible. Thanks for tuning in, and make sure to subscribe to catch the latest episodes. That's it for this one. We'll see you next time.